O God, our Savior, as we hear your word, read and proclaimed, send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher of faith and truth and show us how we are called to live through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's psalm speaks to the theme of worship and some basics in the life of faith, believing, speaking, and doing. And very much like the 24th psalm that Johnny read to start us off today, this has three parts. First, a question about who may be admitted to the temple. And second, an answer setting out ethical requirements. And third, a word of blessing with regard to those who are qualified to enter the temple. And as Johnny did, I will be reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation. So listen now for God's word for us in the 15th Psalm. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh Lord, may my words and may our thoughts be appropriate and right in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the 1960s, my father was the minister of a Trinity Presbyterian church in Macon, Georgia. Now, Macon is a city much like Raleigh, though Macon is not the capital of Georgia. You see, the capital of Georgia is located in another state that's called Atlanta. <laughs> well, one spring, the rumor was going around town that there would be teams of black people who would fan out to churches around the city to see whether they would be admitted to worship. Well, my dad said, this, this just is not an event in which church policy should be decided by up to whoever happened to be the usher at the door that day. So he asked the session to set a policy. They prayed, they talked, they argued. They read the Bible, they prayed some more, and then they reached a decision. All are welcome in the house of the Lord. Well, that didn't sit so well with some people. One of the elders resigned. That didn't sit right at all with him. One deacon, he researched that book of order, our church's uh, constitution, and he found he could circulate a petition, and he got enough signatures on his petition to call a congregational meeting. See, they couldn't undo what the session did, but they called a congregational meeting to, to vote, to ask the session to reconsider. Well, the session reconsidered. You know, they talked, they argued, they prayed and so on, and they came up <laughs> with the same decision. Well, then what happened? Guess what? Turned out that 
that rumor about Easter and controversy, it was false. It was fake news before we called it that. <laughs> no teams tested the churches, but that issue had really sparked a hot discussion and strained relationships and tested the church. Well, one of the ideas that was discussed along the way was to allow blacks to worship with us, at that time an all-white church, if, if they really sincerely were coming there to worship. Now, way back then, I was still young enough to know it all. <laughs> so I got myself recognized in the congregation meeting, and I suggested, you know, that just to be fair, if any visitors were going to be quizzed about their motives to attend church, all of us ought to be. That was a motion that did not get a second. <laughs> so now, fast forward to 2020. Not long after 11 a.m. each week, I invite you to join me in a call to worship. And today's sermon title repeats the first line of today's call to worship. What are we doing here? Now, there's a fellow named David Gambrell. He's written a book called Presbyterian Worship Questions, which fortunately comes with Presbyterian Worship Answers. <laughs> uh, to answer the question, what is worship, he starts by saying, well, you know, as a noun, worship can mean an act of reverence or a religious practice or feeling of respect. It's a sign of worth. But then he suggests that worship's kind of like love. It's my one of those things, it's better to think of it not as an am, think of it as an action word, a verb. To worship is to love the one who first loved us. To worship is to bless the one from whom all blessings flow. To worship is to show our gratitude for God's amazing grace. To worship is to give your life to the giver of life. Now the, the first verse of Psalm 15 Ask about the worshipers. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Well, Jerusalem was what they call the holy hill, and the temple was the sanctuary where worshipers were especially aware of God's presence. Now, I mentioned my friend Rolf Jacobson, the psalm scholar, before. He said the temple, temple was the abode, the abiding place of God, the place where God's name was made to dwell. The temple was the intersection between heaven and earth where the two realms overlapped, shared space. God was seen as dwelling in heaven as well as being present throughout creation, but God's spirit was seen as being especially revealed and available in the temple. It's kind of like now when you say, God doesn't live at church. God lives in us, but we come to church to be especially aware of God's presence. Now, the second verse describes general characteristics of the eligible worshipers. Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from their sincere hearts. Whoa, wait a minute. Blameless? Blameless lives? Doing what's right? Speaking truth from sincere hearts? Well, strict application of those rules will leave many, many empty pews and a whole bunch of empty pulpits. <laughs> Nobody can meet all that. Well, those were the general characteristics. Maybe we ought to consider the specifics, the positive and negative conduct of worthy worshipers. Well, the first specific characteristic is those who refuse to gossip 
or harm the neighbors or speak evil of their friends. I hate to say this, but you know she does such and such, right? Way before I met my beautiful bride, Betty, way back then, I took a girl to a family event, which led her to explain to me on the way home how her family was far superior to my family because she had seen my family gossiping about others while her family never, ever, no, no, never, never did they do that. Well, the funny thing is, right when we got back to her house, her whole family was talking trash about a recent family set of guests who were so thoughtless and so rude and whose children were so spoiled and bratty and wild. Can you imagine? <laughs> and what did my friend say about her family? You know, the one that was so much better than mine? She said, my family gossip, but her family just talked to people who weren't there at the time. <laughs> we were judgmental and they were objective, you see. Well, the fourth verse brings up three characteristics. Those who despise flagrant sinners. Whoa, wait a minute now. It's not our job. It is not our job to self-righteously be judging and hating others. It's our job to pray for sinners, to love them and to help them find a better way. Then the fourth verse continues about those who honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Well, you know, if you don't keep a promise, it undermines trust, it undermines relationship, it undermines the community. If I sign a contract with you and I don't uphold my part, then what good are contracts going to be if it's not going to be something enforced? It undermines community. Well, my observation is that when it comes to excuses, one is just as good as another, pretty much. So many times we convince ourselves we con ourselves into believing it's okay to break a rule, it's okay to break a promise if there's a special circumstance. And there are always some sort of special circumstances. Now the fourth verse has a couple more characteristics, one of which says we might have trouble with and one not. Those who lend money without charging interest and who can't be bribed to lie about the innocent. I've read that this command against interest, against usury, is not a general command about taking interest at all, but against predatory interest, which was widely attested problem in the Near East back then. They had interest rates of 33 to 50% sometimes. That'd be a bad loan. That'd be about some of these credit card rates, right? <laughs> These days, predatory interest is not just a matter of not paying, uh, not having to pay the big to loan sharks and gangsters, but for that matter, those payday loan places that North Carolina's tried to outlaw, or the very high credit card rates I mentioned, or, or for that matter, student loans, which even if you go bankrupt, you can't get out of that student loan, you're gonna pay that thing no matter what. And you can't even renegotiate it a lot of times. Well, Psalm 15 concludes with what is either an observation about the people described as worthy to worship or it's a promise for both. Such people will stand firm 
forever. Now another psalm scholar I mentioned, Jim Mays, writes that to be shaken or moved is a way of speaking about the unsettling, undermining effect of chaotic dimension of reality. God has overcome cosmic chaos and in founding the earth and it cannot be shaken. God's presence keeps his presence keeps his holy dwelling Zion or Jerusalem from being shaken by the chaotic powers of history. And the righteous whose life is based on the way of God are secured against any ultimate undoing by the troubles that buffet life. So, how do you and I, how do we get to be the kind of people Psalm 15 describes as worthy worshipers? How do we get to be those who lead blameless lives, who do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts? How do we get to be the people who refuse to gossip or harm their others or speak evil of their friends or the, the people who keep promises even when it hurts? How do we get to be the people who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent? Well, Mays writes that Psalm 15 tells us God's presence is the power that makes this kind of person possible. God's presence calls and commands, judges and redeems. To be in the place of the presence of God means to be at at the point where the purpose and power of God come to bear on our identity, on who we are and how we live. Let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. Now may the wisdom of God, the love of Christ, and the peace of the Holy Spirit shine brightly in your life, this day and always. Amen. <laughs>